Man, what an awesome salvation we've got. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I've been sharing this time about the positive ministry of the Holy Spirit. And again, I'd just like to encourage you that these are things that you aren't going to hear very often. And I really believe it's important for you to have this so that you can encourage yourself. And so we've got it on CDs and DVDs. I encourage you to please get it. I hadn't got back time to go back and recover everything I've said. And um, also, it, this is a great way for you to share this with somebody else. So please get this uh, series. I believe that this is going to be a keeper. I believe it's going to make a difference in your life. And so I encourage you to please take advantage of that. Real quickly, I've been talking basically from John 14, 15, and 16 about the comforter instead of the accuser or the condemner, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to build us up and encourage us and not condemn us. And this really needs to be expanded on because the church has basically presented the Holy Spirit as the condemner. And yet I was sharing last night that the scripture says in 1 John 3, 19, that we have to assure our hearts, convince our heart, persuade our heart, remove all doubt. And then the next verse, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. God is not the condemner. God is not the one who's giving you this sense of unworthiness and failure and constantly reminding you that you're falling short. And yet many people are deceived. And so they embrace this sense of unworthiness thinking it's a godly thing, that it's coming from God and it's not. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. God is not condemning you. And I tried to spend a lot of time talking about that we've misunderstood the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is why John 16, 7 does not make sense to most of us. Jesus said it was actually to our benefit for him to leave so that he could send the Holy Spirit back. Having the Holy Spirit on the inside of you is better than having Jesus with you in his physical body. Well, most people can't embrace that. And that's because we haven't fully appreciated the Holy Spirit. We've been ascribing the negative effects of a, of a conscience that has been activated by the law. Man, I, I've seen some things right here that I could spend months explaining. Most people do not understand that the purpose that the law came was to make sin come alive and revive on the inside of you is what the scripture says. And the way that happened was through your conscience. And the law was called administration of death and administration of condemnation. Condemnation comes from an Old Testament law mentality. The law was never given to break, in the, break the dominion of sin over you, but rather to make sin dominate you. A New Testament scripture that is the opposite of that is Romans chapter 6, I believe it's verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Turn it around and say that if you are under the law, sin will have dominion over you. Because you aren't under grace, but you're under the law. The law makes you feel guilty and condemned. And we have been redeemed from the law. And yet most Christians don't understand this and they've embraced the ministry of the law and the ministry of condemnation as being the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that is a misunderstanding. It's not fully uh, appreciating and receiving the new covenant that God has given us. 
This morning, I started ministering from John chapter 16, verse 8 and 9, where it talked about the Holy Spirit coming. And it says this in verse 8. It says, and when he, talking of the Holy Spirit has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And the Lord knew that this would be misunderstood. So he explained it in the next verses. He said that the Holy Spirit would reprove the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so he explained exactly what he was talking about. And this morning I was dealing with verse nine, where it says, the Holy Spirit reproves of the sin, not sins plural, but the sin of not believing on Jesus. Before you're born again, he doesn't reprove you of every individual act of sin. It's not about the individual things because the sins of the whole world have been paid for. It's not your sins, plural, that would send any person to hell. It's the rejection of Jesus who paid for your sins, plural. And so it all just boils down to, have you made Jesus your Lord if you've accepted him? And that's what the Holy Spirit is dealing with the unsaved about. Once you get born again, then the Holy Spirit is dealing with believers over not believing on Jesus. He only convicts you of the sin of unbelief. And I tried to spend a lot of time this morning showing that the root of every sin is just unbelief. If you lie, the real thing that's wrong with lying is not the way that it affects other people, not the way that it sets a trap for you, not the fact that you are going to lose credibility with people and other things. The real root of it, the thing that upsets God about lying is the fact that you don't believe him. You don't trust him. You can't deal with reality and truth. You feel insecure because you aren't relying on God. And so you have to change and embellish and state things differently and exaggerate and inflate things because you aren't confident and secure in your relationship with the Lord. It's the sin of unbelief. And I show that this is what happened with David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and other places. You know, this is what happened with Adam and Eve. Some people think, well, they sinned when they ate of the tree. Yes, that was sin and that was wrong and it directly broke a command. But you know what was really wrong? You know what the root of that sin was? They didn't believe God. God. God told them that they were created in the image of God. That's what he told them. He created them in his image. And yet a talking snake came along and convinced them that no, they weren't God. They weren't like God. They'd be more like God if they disobeyed God. Don't believe God. Believe me. The root of that sin was that they didn't trust what God had told them. They also didn't believe that God was a good God. They thought that God was withholding something that actually would make their life better from them. And so they decided that they would abandon God and not believe him and not trust him. And they'd lean under their own understanding and they let a talking snake sway them from trusting and believing in the goodness of God. You could just, any sin that you want to mention, you can keep peeling back the layers. And the bottom line is that some way or another, you are not trusting God. You aren't believing on him. You aren't relying on him. And that's why people go and get drunk and get high on dope is because they can't cope with things by relying on God and let God be their peace Let God show them their love. They have to go and do stuff to escape and get away from it because their life is so miserable. 
This is the root of everything. Every sin at its bottom line is they just aren't believing Jesus. Look at this verse over in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 4. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4 and look at this. This is the temptation of Jesus. And I refer to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Let me just read that. If you're already in Matthew, stay there and I'll read this to you. They'll put it up on the screen. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. This says that Jesus was tempted in all points. That means in every way, the way that we're tempted. Do you know Jesus was never tempted with cocaine? Jesus never was tempted with the thoughts of divorce. Jesus was never tempted with, uh, you know, a lot of things that we deal with, the stress and the pressure of all of our modern society and stuff. And yet the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are. So which is it? See, when you are looking and say, but oh man, he was never tempted with drug addiction and he was never tempted with that. That is not the real problem. The problem of drug addiction is that you aren't believing on the Lord. You aren't trusting in him. You are trying to cope and deal with things in a carnal, natural way instead of letting God deal with it. And Jesus was tempted in all of those points. See, if you, if you look at the thousands and thousands of different temptations that can come against you, you might say, well, Jesus was never tempted with some of those things. But if you go to the root of all sin and look at it, he was tempted with the root of every temptation of everything that came against us. Over in 1 John chapter 3, I am getting to um, Matthew chapter 4. I haven't forgotten it. But in 1 John chapter 2... It says, for all that is in the world, verse um, 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. He's saying all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You can go over to Genesis chapter 3 and see that Adam and Eve had three temptations, the lust of the eyes. They saw the tree. And it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. And they lusted for all these things. They were tempted in these three areas. Jesus had three temptations come to him. He was tempted in every point, not with the individual things, but he was tempted to disbelieve his father. Now look in Matthew chapter 4. And it said, let me back up just a couple of verses into Matthew chapter 3. This is where Jesus was baptized by John in the river Jordan. And as he came up out of the river, it says in verse 16, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Did you know Jesus hadn't performed a single miracle at this time? Jesus hadn't done anything. And yet the Father said, I am well pleased. 
not because of what he had done, because of who he was. The father in an audible voice put his stamp of approval. This is my beloved son. Man, that's awesome. And I hadn't got time to develop this. Man, this is just powerful, but I'm not, you're going to have to pray and hope the Holy Spirit can reveal this to you. But you know, Jesus didn't come out of the womb speaking Hebrew. It says in Luke 2:52 that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The angels proclaimed, go see Christ, the Lord. Jesus didn't grow into becoming God. He was born God. It was Christ, God in us, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was born God, but it was in his spirit. His natural body, even though it was not a sinful body, it had to grow and develop. He had to learn to speak Hebrew. He had to learn to feed himself. He had to learn to control his bowels. He had to learn how to write, how to read, how to do things. His physical body He had to educate it. And Jesus was God in the spirit, but he had to believe by faith and accept that he was God. I don't have the words to describe that. I don't fully understand it. But you know what? It took faith for Jesus to believe that he was God. I know some of you, this is a new wrinkle in your brain. You're thinking, no, he was God. He was God in his spirit, but you are a completely brand new person in your spirit. You have the same power that raised Christ from the dead. You have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 16. You know all things, 1 John 2, 20. You can lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Nothing is impossible unto you. All of those things are true of you in your born again spirit. And yet I can guarantee you in your mind, you can doubt that. You can go more by what you feel and what you see than what you believe. Jesus had that capacity. Now, he didn't have the corruption that you and I have, but he did have a mind that was not God. It was a human, sinless mind, but it, he had to believe that he was God. There was a time that his mother came to him and said, Jesus, I need to tell you something. Joseph is not really your dad. I got pregnant with you without a man. The Holy Spirit came upon me. God spoke the word into me and you were conceived supernatural. You've been born like no other person on the face of the earth. You are God. You are the one prophesied. Jesus had to accept that by faith. Now, I believe that the spirit within him knew this and bore witness, but it still was a step of faith. And the reason I say all of that is that here he was baptized. God spoke in an audible voice and confirmed what he had been believing his whole life and working towards. He had the voice of God, the approval of his father. And immediately in chapter four, Jesus was led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Did you know what the real temptation of Jesus was? Not to turn a stone into bread. I can't find anything in Scripture that says it's sin to turn a stone into bread. 
I don't believe it would have been sin to turn a stone into bread. But you know what the real temptation was? His father had just said, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased. And Satan was saying, we don't have the benefit of hearing the inflection of his voice. But I believe Satan was saying, if you're really the son of God, prove it. Do something. Do something supernatural. Establish your identity outside of what God has said about you. And prove it in the things that you do. He was tempted with the sin of unbelief. Not trusting what his father said about him and trying to do something to prove who he was. That was the temptation. And it was just turning a stone into bread was playing on his natural uh, need for food. He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry and he was just trying to get him to meet his need outside of God. Physically and proving who he was. He was tempted with the sin of, the sin of unbelief. Y'all see that? That's the root of every sin. And then it goes on down and um, Jesus answered that in verse 4. He answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, he wasn't going to meet his need in satisfying any doubts that he had by putting it in, turning a stone into bread. He was depending upon the word of God that had been spoken that he was his beloved son. And then in verse five, it says, then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and sets him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, if you be the son of God, cast thyself down. And he gave him another temptation. But two of these three temptations began with, if you are the son of God, prove it. Jesus was tempted with unbelief and yet he remained faithful and he stood on what the word said and went by what God had said to him and he answered every temptation with it is written. He didn't go by how he felt. He didn't look for something natural. There are so many people that if you had a choice between a goosebump, a feeling, seeing the glory cloud, I don't know how many of you have been around enough to hear all of this stuff. But so many people are into the glory cloud and feathers and oil in the hands and, and somebody jumped a pew and somebody fell on the floor and flopped. And I'm not against any of these things. There are physical manifestations, but there's a lot of people that if you had a choice between something like that and here's what the word says, most people would throw the Bible on the floor and I have a feeling and an experience. Jesus answered everything with instead of doing something in the natural that would prove and demonstrate the things of God, he answered everything with, it is written. He based his life, he overcame every doubt with, it is written. And there's a lot of people that just think that the word isn't enough. I want to feel something. I know that the Bible says he loves me, but I want to feel it. You just need to pull the thumb out of your mouth and go to believing what the Word of God says and not go by how you feel. Amen. And you know, the strange thing is when you do that, you get all kinds of feelings. And you do feel and experience the love of God. I'm not against feelings. I enjoy feelings. I feel the presence of God. But you know what? There's times I don't feel it and I know that God is always with me whether I feel it or not. There are people that say things like, well, God wasn't within 100 miles of that meeting. 
That's not what the Word says. The Word says two or three are gathered together. There's a special anointing and presence of God here. Some of you may think, well, I hadn't felt a thing tonight. That just shows how carnal you are. It doesn't mean that God's not here. We stand up and pray, oh God, be with us and go with us as we leave this place. What a stupid prayer. How's God going to answer a prayer like that? He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Is he going to leave and then come back so that he can answer this prayer about come and be with us? You're praying a stupid prayer in the first place. But people pray that way because, well, I don't feel anything. And nobody's jumped. Nobody screamed. Nobody's felt anything. That doesn't mean that God's not here. It just means that we aren't receiving well. We need to base our life on the word of God. That's how Jesus overcome this temptation to say, if you are the son of God. And this is what the Holy Spirit is always doing. The only thing he's really going to reprove you over is not the stupid things that we do. It all comes back to why aren't you trusting in Jesus? He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And so he will draw you into doing the right thing, not in order to have God love you, but rather he will tell you about how much God loves you. And so trust in the Lord and let God meet your needs and you will be so satisfied with God that you can lay down your bottle and you can throw away your pills and you can quit depending upon all the other crutches and things that we substitute for God. And holiness comes as a fruit, not a root of salvation. It's a byproduct. Some of you are thinking, well, what's the difference? Huge difference. The motive behind why you do what you do is more important than what you do. And if you are trying to do all of the right things in order to, for God to love you, there is fear of rejection and there is no peace in that. Fear has torment. But instead, if you just understand that God loves you and receive the love of God, then you will live holier accidentally than you've ever lived on purpose before. There won't be any, there won't be any sorrow with it. There won't be any tragedy. You'll have joy as a Christian. You could be doing the exact same thing as the person who is doing it out of legalism and feeling like if I don't do this, God won't bless me. And yet you would have joy and peace, whereas they'll never be satisfied. It's not what you do. It's your heart attitude. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God is examining your motives. And there are some of you that are straight as a gun barrel and twice as empty. You wouldn't dare dip or cuss or chew, go with those that do, but you don't have any joy and you don't have any peace and you don't have any power because you're doing the right things, but with the totally wrong motivation. God will peel back the layers and show you that, you know what, you may be reading the Bible, but you're doing it as something, a debt, an obligation. You may be giving, but you're doing it to pay God off, to bribe him, to keep him off of your back. You aren't doing it motivated out of love. First Corinthians chapter 13, if I give all of my goods to feed the poor or if I give my body to be burned and don't do it motivated by love, it profits me nothing. The Lord promised a hundredfold return in this life. Mark chapter 10 around verse 28, 30 somewhere. 
You'll get a hundredfold in this life, not just in the one to come, but in this life. If all there was to prosperity is you give a hundred dollars and you get back a hundredfold, $10,000 in return. If that's all that there was to it, just like you put something in a slot machine and pull the handle and God comes out, then think about how much money you've put into the gospel. And if you had a hundredfold return on it, most people in here would be multi, multi-millionaires. But it doesn't work that way because your motive is more important than your action. If you give everything you've got and don't have the right heart attitude, it profits you nothing. There are some of you that have given thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and have never seen a return on it because your heart attitude is I'm paying a debt. I'm robbing God. If I don't do this, I'll be cursed if I don't do this. And you're giving under the old covenant motivation instead of the new covenant motivation and it profits you nothing. We need this positive ministry of the Holy Spirit to recognize that God loves you and he's more concerned about having your heart. If God gets your heart, he'll get your pocketbook. He'll get your actions. He'll get everything that you've got. God wants you, not what you can offer him. He doesn't just want your service. He wants you. And yes, service is important, but service is the byproduct. You know, when I proposed to Jamie, I said, I want you to spend the rest of your life, share the rest of my life with me. I wanted a relationship with Jamie. I didn't want to cook. I didn't want somebody to clean the house and wash my clothes. I never even thought about that stuff. Did you know that Jamie runs a very nice house? Very orderly. Everything is in its place. She cooks for me. She cleans. She does a lot of things and they enhance and it's a blessing that she does this. But that's not why I married her to get a cook. I wanted relationship. And the fact that she does these things voluntarily as a benefit just enhances our relationship. But that's not why I married her. I could, I could hire a maid. Amen. God did not save you just so that he could get somebody that could work for him and somebody that would do something. And yes, it's important what we do. But if you're doing it with the wrong motivation, trying to please God and earn his favor, you know what? God could actually be put off by all of your good works. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, he's the one that commanded us to offer sacrifices. And yet he said, I'm sick of your sacrifices. Away with them. They are a stink in my nostrils. That's talking about things that he commanded. But people substituted sacrifices. They were going through the rituals and offering all of the rituals, but their heart was far from him. And he says, man, I don't, I'm not pleased with this. I just don't want the actions. I don't want the outward things. I want your heart. Same thing applies today. There are people in here that, man, you may be doing the right things, but you aren't doing it out of love. You are doing it in order to get God's love. And that's not pleasing. The Holy Spirit is trying to witness to you that God loves you. God wants you. He's always going to be dealing with. It's just a matter of loving God. Trust him. Believe him. The Bible says, Galatians 5, 6, faith works by love. 
I couldn't tell you how many people come up to me and they need a healing in their body. They need prosperity in their finances. They need something and they're trying to believe God, but it's so hard for them to believe God. You know why? Because they don't have the love relationship with God that they should. Faith works by love. They're just going through formulas. They're trying to say the right things and act the right way, but relationship is what produces faith. If you could imagine a little baby in their father's arms, how many babies sit there and say, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that my dad will not drop me. I believe he is going to feed me. I believe he's going to get me a tricycle. I believe God, they, a kid doesn't do that. They just have a relationship. And because of that relationship, they never even think about it. They just trust their dad. If he says, jump off of the diving board into water that's over their head and they can't swim, if they have a good relationship, the kid will just do it because they trust their dad. They don't have to sit there and overcome the fear because faith works by love. If you are struggling to really believe God, how can I really believe that God's going to heal me? You can say whatever you want, but the bottom line is you just really don't believe how much God loves you. You do not have a good revelation of his love. And the Holy Spirit's not going to sit there and say, you aren't believing God. What's wrong with you, you deadhead? Start believing God. No, he'll minister to you. Trust God. God loves you. See, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He's always reproving of just this one thing. It all comes back to relationship with God. Just trust God. He loves you. He wants to meet your needs. And if you understand it this way, then it's a positive ministry. It's not negative. It's not condemning. I had a man over here tonight who asked me for some very personal things. And I told him, I said, these are things I can't pray over. I said, you don't get free from these things by prayer. You just need to humble yourself. You need relationship with God. These are characteristics that the only thing that's going to change you is the supernatural power of God. You can't pray and just get set free from some of these things. And this is the deal. The Holy Spirit is trying to establish relationship. It's all about relationship. Amen. Amen. That's what this is saying. Go back to um, John chapter 16. Remember that it says that the Holy Spirit would reprove us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He does these three things simultaneously. He doesn't just do one of them or two of them. He does all three of these things. And you know, I used to read this based on the religion that I had been brought up in, that this was a negative condemning ministry, that the Holy Spirit's going to show me everything I've done wrong and rebuke me for my sin and then convince me that because of that sin, I'm unrighteous. And if I don't repent, I'm going to be judged. And I bet you there's a lot of people sitting right in this room tonight that this is the way that you've read these scriptures. You think that the Holy Spirit is there to nail you when you do something wrong and show you you're unrighteous. And if you don't repent, you're going to be judged. But that's not what this says. He reproves of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The one sin of not believing on Jesus. Not all of these individual actions. And then in verse 10, it says of righteousness, not unrighteousness. But the Holy Spirit convicts, reproves of righteousness, not unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit is not showing you your unrighteousness, but he's showing you your righteousness, your right standing with God. 
And remember, he does this in conjunction with these three things. If he does show you that there's something in your life, and this is an indication that you aren't really trusting and believing on Jesus, and you need to trust him, you need to draw closer, you need to understand the love that God has for you. That could be taken as disapproval. It's not. It's always in a positive way. So right along with that, he'll show you, but you're righteous. God still loves you. You are already in right standing with God. You are righteous through what Jesus did, not through what you did. You are in right standing with God, not based on your performance, but based on what Jesus did for you. If you understand this properly, the Holy Spirit is going to sit there and when he does show you that there's a deficiency and that you aren't trusting in the Lord, he'll come right back and say, but you're righteous. God loves you. You haven't lost anything. God's not displeased at you. He's not angry with you. Man, that's awesome. I bet you every person in here has heard somebody stand up before and say, man, I'm just so convicted of God over my sin and how unrighteous I was. And they give credit to the Holy Spirit for that. Holy Spirit doesn't convict you of unrighteousness. He convicts you of righteousness. You know what the experience should be in church? You ought to hear people stand up and say, man, I haven't been living the way that I should and I was living under so much guilt and condemnation, but the Holy Spirit showed me I was righteous in spite of my sin and in spite of my failures. He just showed me that God loves me and I'm in right standing with God, that God loves me and there's nothing I can do about it. Amen. God's not mad at me. God's not even in a bad mood. That the Holy Spirit showed me that God loves me. How many people have heard that in church? Not very many. Most people would stand up and think, man, that must be the devil. No, the Holy Spirit will convict you of righteousness. That you are in right standing with God. And it is not based on what you do. Your righteousness doesn't fluctuate. If your righteousness fluctuates, if you feel closer to God and sometimes more righteous than others, it's because you are talking about self-righteousness. You've not received the righteousness that is from God. Romans chapter 10 talks about that they, these people being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness which is of God by faith. A faith righteousness, not a works righteousness, not a performance righteousness. And it says the religious people of Jesus' day were not aware of a righteousness that comes as a gift as a result of believing and trusting on God. Instead, they were trying to earn righteousness. I couldn't tell you how many times I've been in churches and I've heard people pray, oh God, just make me righteous. And you want to tell them, get saved. <laughs> but they are saved and they don't know that they're righteous. They think they've got to grow and become righteous. The truth is you were born again righteous. Yes. Ephesians chapter four, verse 24 says, put on the new man. That's talking about your born again spirit, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You don't grow and become righteous. The moment you get born again, God takes your sinful nature away and he imputes unto you righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says, for he, God, the father hath made him Jesus who knew no sin 
to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's talking about a switch, a change. If you believe that Jesus became sin and took your sin, then what he accomplished through that also has to be true. It's like a flip side of a coin. If it's got a heads, then it's got to have the tails. If Jesus became sin, then you had to become righteous in your born again spirit. And I know that there's some of you in here thinking, man, this is weird. What are you talking about? If you were to follow me around, you'd know I'm not righteous. You're only talking about your body, your actions, and your thought life. But if you've been born again in your spirit, you were created righteous and truly holy. You are as pure and holy as Jesus is in your spirit. You were created that way. And then Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It forms an impenetrable barrier around your spirit and sin doesn't penetrate your spirit. So even as a Christian, once you're born again, that sin may enter into your body and give Satan inroad to attack your body. It may enter into your soul, your mind and emotions and give Satan an inroad for discouragement and depression and anger and bitterness and hurt and things like that. But sin doesn't penetrate this seal of the Holy Spirit that's around your spirit and your spirit remains righteous and holy and pure even if you sin. And you put that together with Ephesians chapter four, verse 24 that says God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You could also interpret that and say, if you want to contact him, if you want to have relationship with him, you must do it in spirit, through your spirit, through who you are in Christ, not through your external actions. And I know some of you right now are just going, tell, 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 like this can't be because your whole life is, but I've got to do right in order for God to accept me. God doesn't accept you based on your actions and performance. No novice in here can live good enough to be accepted. You just accept Jesus and Jesus makes you righteous in your spirit and seals you so that that never changes. And then as you walk in this positive ministry of the Holy Spirit and he shows you who you are and what God has done, you become so thankful for being set free from your sins and from the punishment of your sins, hell, that you wind up serving God better accidentally than you ever did on purpose before. And holiness becomes a fruit, not a root. It's a byproduct, not the way to relationship with God. I believe in living holy, but I don't believe in living holy makes me righteous. I was made righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus. And because I am righteous and he shows me that I'm in right standing, I just love him so much, I want to live for him. I don't stay faithful to Jamie because I'm afraid that Jamie's going to get me if I don't. You know, all of these media ministries that have committed adultery and stuff. Jamie and I were talking about that and saying, man, she says, well, you wouldn't have to worry. If you ever commit adultery, I'll kill you. It's easier to ask forgiveness than it is. <laughs> but you know what? The reason I, I, the reason I don't commit adultery on Jamie isn't because I'm afraid of Jamie. If push came to shove, I could take her. <laughs> Amen. I believe I could take her. <laughs> 
And you know what? I'm not afraid of God. I believe God would still love me. But you know what? I'm faithful to Jamie because I love Jamie and I love God. I'm not doing it out of fear. Fear has torment. I love Jamie and I love God. And that's the reason I do it. That's a radical concept to some people. People say all the time, if you preach this grace, people are just going to start living in sin because they think that the only reason anybody does anything right is because they're afraid that God's going to punish them. Man, what a sad state that the only thing that's making you do what's right is because you're afraid you're going to be whipped. You know, when I was a kid, we lived on a busy city, city street. And my mother, my dad was always sickly and he didn't discipline me very much. And he had died when I was two years old and was raised from the dead. And for the next 10 years, he was sickly all the time. So anyways, my mother that whooped me, that corrected me. And, and we lived on this busy, busy city street. And she told me if I ever crossed that street without looking both ways, she's going to whoop me. And she whooped me bunches of times. Today, it'd probably be considered child abuse. She beat me. And you know, when I was a kid, because of that, I'd look two or three or four times before I'd cross that street. And my mother just died last year. She was 96 years old. But you know what? It's been decades now since I've been afraid of my mother whipping me. But to this day, you see me cross the street, I'll look two or three or four times. It started out, I used to not go look, I'd look both ways because I was afraid my mother was going to whip me. But there was a time that I finally realized that it's not the whipping that's the problem, it's the truck, amen. It's the car and I begin to see past the physical punishment to the real reason. And there are so many Christians today that are just afraid that God's going to get them. That's the way the Old Testament was. People couldn't understand and perceive spiritual truth until you got born again. It says this in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto them. Neither can they know them because they're spiritually discerned. A lost man does not have spiritual perception. You've got to be born again and then you are given the Holy Spirit that shows you these things, reveals things to you. And so before people got born again, they served God out of fear that he was going to judge them. But now that we are not just children anymore, but we've become sons of God, we are now supposed to realize the real reason for living holy isn't because God's going to get us. God loves us. But now we live holy because having one wife is better than having multiple wives. Contrary to what some people think, God gave that law because he made us and he knows what really satisfies. Multiple relationships isn't the right thing. God told us, he told us it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. It's supposed to be a man and a woman. Not two men, not two women. And regardless of what people say, it's not that we're against anybody who's homosexual. It's because this is what's good for you. You know, this is politically incorrect, but I might as well say it. 
But did you know they put warning on cigarettes because they take the, the average cigarette, a um, person that smokes cigarettes decreases their life by seven years, seven to 10 years. Did you know statistically, this is just a fact that is put out by the gay and lesbian fund. This is not me. This is the gay and lesbian fund. You can go onto their website and they put these facts on trying to solicit sympathy for homosexuals. But by their own account, homosexuals live an average of 20 to 25 years less than their heterosexual counterparts. And if we were going to be honest and not afraid of people's opinion, there ought to be a warning on homosexuality. If we put a warning on cigarettes for seven years off the average life, then it is incorrect. It's hypocritical not to tell people that homosexuality is damaging to your life. It'll take years off of your life. I'm not against homosexuals. I love homosexuals. I know people that are homosexuals. I'm not mad at them. I'm not a a homosexual hater. I hate what it does to people. It's not good. It'll destroy your life. And so God said these things, not because he's against people, but he knows what he created us to be like and what's going to make you happy and satisfied. And homosexuality does not satisfy The suicide rate among homosexuals is anywhere from five to 10 times as much as heterosexuals. Spousal abuse is like 30 to 50 times as much in homosexuals as it is in heterosexuals. You know, if people were going to be honest and and open-minded and not prejudiced, they talk about Christians being prejudiced, but the secular world is prejudiced. If they were going to be truly honest, if they found something that cost 50 times, not 50% more, but 50 times as much spousal abuse. If there was some food that you ate that made you abuse people 50 times as much as people that don't do it, I guarantee you they'd ban it. If they're going to start telling you in New York what foods you can eat, and ban fats and do things like this. I guarantee you, if they were going to be honest, they would ban homosexuality because of the negative effects of it. But they aren't, it's not honest. God says these things because he knows how he made us to be. And it's the right thing to do. And so now I don't have to live holy in order to get God to love me. God loves me. And because of that, I know he is so good that if he says in here that this is the way it's supposed to be, I'm not going to make the same mistake that Adam and Eve did and think, well, he told me not to do this because he doesn't want me to be like him. The truth is they were more like him before they ate of the fruit than they were after they ate of the fruit. I'm not going to take somebody else's opinion. God loved me enough to die for me. He gave his son for me and I trust him. And if he tells me this is the way I'm supposed to be, I'm going to do it not in fear that he's going to punish me if I don't, but I'm going to do it in love and respect and thankfulness for what he's already done. See, this is the way the Holy Spirit motivates people. He motivates you not over individual things, but God loves you. Trust him. Believe in him. That's the root of all sin. And then he'll tell you, you're righteous. Even though you've messed up this time, even though what you did was wrong, you're still in right standing with God. The average Christian believes that every time you sin, you lose your right standing with God and you've got to be born again again. 
or you got to repent and get that sin under the blood. And until you do, God won't fellowship with you. God won't bless you. God won't answer your prayer. If I really believe that, then the moment you got born again, I'd just kill you. I might go to hell, but that's the only way you'd ever get to heaven. If you had to have every sin confessed and everything done right. Sin is not only the things you're doing wrong. Sin is what you should be doing that you're failing to do. And all of us are failing to study the word and love God and love people and love our mate the way that we should. And if you have this concept that God, you're only righteous when you do something, you have missed faith righteousness. You're into a works performance-based righteousness and you are not receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will show you that you are in right standing with God through what Jesus did for you and not through what you do. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of righteousness. And Jesus said that he will convict you of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. You know what that means? Jesus was constantly showing the goodness of God and the grace of God. He saw Zacchaeus, the worst sinner in the entire town. And before Zacchaeus even asked for forgiveness, he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go eat with you today. And everybody just, he's eating with a publican, a sinner. The religious people hated it. And yet Jesus showed goodness and mercy and love towards people that were rejected by the religious standard. He showed the righteousness. He convicted people that, hey, you're in right standing with me. The religious people came out and condemned him. And he said, look, it's not the well that need a physician. It's the sick. And so Jesus identified and loved people who were outcasts. Did you know Jesus never rebuked a prostitute? He never rebuked a publican. He never rebuked what we call quote unquote a sinner. You know, the only people that were ever rebuked by Jesus were self-righteous, religious, holy people. The only people, you can read it in Matthew chapter 23, go through the list of people he rebuked. And they were the people who paid tithes on mint and anise and cumin. And they fasted and they prayed and they went to uh, prayer twice a day. And they never failed to go to church and synagogue. And they did all of the right things, but they were trusting in their own goodness. Self-righteousness is the worst sin of them all. It is infinitely worse than homosexuality. Trusting in yourself is denial of Jesus. And Jesus only rebuked the religious people. But see, when he was on the earth, he was constantly showing love towards people who were sinning and missing the mark. He didn't approve of their sin. He told the woman taken in the very act of adultery, go and sin no more. He didn't approve of their sin, but he didn't reject them over their sin. He showed love. He showed them that you can still be in right standing with God. But now that he is not here physically to show us this, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to show you that you are righteous and that God is pleased with you. You don't have Jesus in his physical body here to walk up and say, Andrew, I still love you even though you've messed up and even though you aren't the person that I really want you to be, but I still love you. Boy, how much would that minister to you when you feel like, God, I failed? And if Jesus could walk up to you and physically say, I know that you aren't everything you're supposed to be, but you know what? I love you anyway. 
If you could physically see that and hear that, boy, I guarantee you, you would be fired up. Jesus isn't going to physically do that, but the Holy Spirit will do that 24 hours a day and constantly tell you that you are righteous. He will convict you of righteousness. You know how he does that? It's not going to be something that he forces on you. It's not just going to come upon you and overwhelm you and all of a sudden you're going to be knocked to the floor with the sense that you're righteous. But he will take the word of God, these truths, and he will bear witness with the truth. If you don't know the truth, he can't bear witness with it. If you haven't studied it and if this truth hasn't come to you, he can't bring to your remembrance all things that Jesus said to you, John 14, 26. You first of all have to get these truths, but then the Holy Spirit will bring them back to your remembrance. And as you start speaking the word of God and ministering, it's like I was teaching last night in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. It says that the Holy Spirit helps our infirmities. That means he takes hold together with you. And once you take the word of God and the truth that has been revealed and you start speaking it and assuring your heart, then the Holy Spirit will join together with you and energize those words that you're saying and help you to believe it. But you have to start encouraging yourself in the Lord and then the Holy Spirit will help. But he will not just do it for you. He is not going to sit there and force unbelief out of you. You have to encourage yourself in the Lord. And so he will reprove you of the singular sin of unbelief and then he'll show you, but you're still righteous. You are in right standing. You are right because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did. And then the next thing it says in verse 11 of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. This isn't talking about your impending judgment. It's talking about that the devil is the one who's the loser. He's the one that's been defeated. It's kind of subtle here, but in a sense, when he convinces you of Satan's judgment that the prince of this world is judged, what this is talking about is he will show you your authority and your power. He'll, he'll show you that, look, you aren't trusting God in this area. Trust him. You aren't believing God. But lest you get condemned over that, he'll say, but you're still righteous. And remember, you're the one with authority. Even though you may not have done everything that you should, you are the one with authority. Satan's future is so bad that, man, he has no right to condemn you. And he will show you that you're the one that's in the driver's seat. Don't sit there and put up with these things. You know, we tend to become so introspective. I had a woman over here tonight saying, I've done this and this and this. There must be something wrong. I haven't seen the manifestation. What's wrong? And I said, well, there probably is something wrong. But you know what? You don't need to be introspective. And you can get to where, God, what do I need to do? What have I not done? That you're so focused on what you need to do that you miss what Jesus has already done for you. Operate in all that you know to do and man, be learning and, and getting better all of the time, but trust in the goodness of God. Trust in the grace of God and remember that you're, the devil is stripped powerless. You've got more power in your little finger than the devil has in an entire kingdom. <laughs> Satan is a zero with the rim knocked off. He's nothing. 
And so, yeah, you may not be doing everything right, but you still are the one with power and authority. Don't let the devil intimidate you. You know, when Jamie and I first got started, we never had even heard of Copenhagen. I mean, Copeland and Hagen. We had never heard of them. We didn't know faith. We'd never heard faith teaching. We didn't understand about your confession and the words that you speak. We didn't understand hardly anything. But we knew God and we knew it was His will for miracles to happen. And we just started praying for people and speaking over people and believing God. And we saw blind eyes open and deaf ears open. And we saw miracles happen before we even knew what we were doing. Even an old blind squirrel will get a nut every once in a while if he doesn't quit. And we just prayed for so many people that, you know what, even if you only saw 1% heal, we, we were going to see a lot of people heal because we were praying for everything. And yet there's some people that they think they got to have everything just perfect before they can receive from God. And that very thought is what's keeping you. You aren't recognizing your power and authority. You got so much power. Just get in and start resisting the devil. If you don't know how to do it, just do it anyway. And the more you learn, the better it'll work, the quicker it'll work, the less effort it'll take. But you know what? You can get the devil gone if you don't know very much. Just refuse to submit to him. Just fight him and say, I don't know what it takes, but I will not give in to this thing. I refuse to bow. I'm the one with power and authority. I'm the one that's in right standing. I refuse to let this sickness dominate me. I refuse to let depression dominate me. And you start resisting and you'll just beat the devil even if you don't know what you're doing. But man, we're just so quick to give up because we aren't receiving this ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will minister to you that you're the one that's with the authority. The devil's been judged. He's nothing. He's nobody. Don't be intimidated by the devil. The Holy Spirit will remind you of that. Man, this is powerful. The Holy Spirit is sent to show you that God loves you. And it's really just one thing. You just need to love God. You need to trust Him. Believe Him. Faith works by love. And you're righteous, not based on what you've done, but based on what Jesus did for you. And that never fluctuates. You're sealed your righteousness never leaves. God is a spirit and he's seeing you in the spirit. And even though you may have done wrong in your body and in your thoughts, your spirit is as pure, as holy as Jesus is. And if you get that knowledge, it'll, it'll just make faith abound on the inside of you. And then the Holy Spirit will say, you're the one with authority and power. You resist this thing. You fight it. And my power on the inside of you will help you to overcome. The Holy Spirit is your best friend. The Holy Spirit is sent to encourage us. And brothers and sisters, many of us are just not appreciating the Holy Spirit. We aren't letting Him have dominance in our life. One of the things that I've learned about the Lord is that He's a gentleman. He's provided everything for us, but God will not force you to receive. God will let you live your entire life in sickness and disease the whole time that he's paid for your healing. And he will send people across your path and he will expose the truth to you. The Holy Spirit will try and reveal it to you. But you know what? If you don't want it, he will not force you to get healed. 
He won't force you to be prosperous. He will not force you to have joy and peace. You can be miserable. And you can, the average Christian is just begging God, like God, make it happen in my life. He's not going to force you to do anything. He's provided it all. But now you've got to stand up, renew your mind, encourage yourself, let the Holy Spirit reveal things. And you've got to start releasing this. God's put it on the inside of you. It says in Philippians, I think chapter two, it's God that works in you. Now work out your salvation with fear and tremble. God puts it in you. Now you get it out. Stir it up. Release it. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of these things and to encourage you. And again, I say that there's a lot of ways that this happens. It's not only through the gift of speaking in tongues. There's many different gifts of the Holy Spirit. But you know, speaking in tongues is so powerful. Because when you speak in tongues, I've I've been doing it now for... Man, I don't even know, 40 years or 41 years I've been speaking in tongues. And I've prayed in tongues sometimes 17 hours at a lick without stopping. I went years praying in tongues an hour or two hours a day. And I still pray in tongues hours at a time. This last week, I prayed in tongues well over two hours at one time. I pray in tongues a lot. And I've been doing it for years. And yet, did you know that still when I start speaking in tongues, there is a temptation to think this is foolish. The Bible says that it's foolishness to the natural man. And even though I'm born again and the spirit part of me is perfect, I still have a natural man and it doesn't make sense to your mind. You spend an entire lifetime trying to do things that make sense and be dignified and quit being silly and foolish. And then God gives you this gift of speaking in tongues that doesn't make a lick of sense. And you know what? To the natural mind, it is foolishness. And I, every time I speak in tongues, I'm faced with a decision. Am I really believing that this is God speaking through me or am I just speaking gibberish? Am I making this up? And for me to continue to speak in tongues, I have to move beyond my natural mind beyond my carnal self and say, this is what the word of God says. They that believe will speak in tongues. And I am a believer and I have to just move over into faith. And this is precisely one of the reasons that speaking in tongues is so powerful because it pushes you into a realm of faith. You can't pray in tongues for 20 or 30 minutes at a time without getting into faith. If you don't, and if you just allow your mind to wander, you'll wind up quitting speaking in tongues and you'll be over here occupied with something. For you to continue to speak in tongues over a prolonged period of time, it forces you to take a step of faith and say, I am doing this in the name of the Lord. And it forces you to put your mind on God. It is one of the most powerful things to focus you on the things of God. And I've said this before, but it's like flipping a switch. It just, boom, all of a sudden, this dynamo starts working on the inside of you and the Holy Spirit starts convicting you and reproving you of the single sin of unbelief and showing you that you're righteous and that you're the one with authority and you start being built up. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I believe it's verse 2 or 4, 
it says, he that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. The word edify means to build up and promote spiritual growth. What is that? Verse what? Two. You build up, promote spiritual growth. This is a promise from the word of God. So if you want to grow, speak in tongues. And it says when you speak in tongues, you promote spiritual growth. You build yourself up. Why in the world would we have something that promises that when you speak in tongues, it's going to make you grow spiritually. And then you go days, weeks, months without speaking in tongues. What's wrong with this picture? There are people right in this room that you got the baptism of the Holy Ghost 20 years ago and spoke in tongues and hadn't spoken in tongues since. You thought speaking in tongues was something you did to prove that you got the Holy Spirit. And if you're in a church service where you feel the anointing of God and everybody else is shouting, you might speak in tongues for one sentence just to kind of let steam off, to have a goosebump run up and down your spine. And you think, oh yeah, I speak in tongues. Man, that's not what it's about. It's a powerful thing that focuses you and forces you to put your mind on the Lord. I was talking with Oral Roberts last year just before he died and he said that he seldom ever prays in English until he's already prayed in tongues. He says he doesn't know how to pray in English until he's prayed in tongues and let the Holy Spirit energize he was talking about his best, one of his best friends, Billy Graham. He gave Billy Graham a brand new walker. Billy Graham said it was like a Cadillac compared to his Volkswagen that he had. And they became great friends. And he said he, the very first time Billy and him met, Billy Graham asked him to pray over him. And they went around and everybody prayed. And Oral was the last one. And Oral just started speaking in tongues. And he prayed in tongues for quite a while before he prayed in English. And man, when they got through, Billy Graham had tears in his eyes and said, man, that's the first time in my life that anybody's ever prayed for me. And old Robert says, man, people pray for you by the millions all the time. He says, not like that. He says, and he would always ask Oral Roberts, he says, please pray over me in tongues. He loved Oral Roberts. And he said they would just pray in tongues. And you know, there's people that have gotten offended before and have criticized me because how dare you bring up Oral Roberts? Don't you know that he did this and he did that and they criticize him? I don't agree with Oral Roberts on everything, but you know, it's like if I was driving here from Colorado and if Pastor Derry was three hours in front of me on the road that I'm driving down, it doesn't matter whether I like him or his long hair or not. I don't have to agree with the way the guy looks or acts. If he's three hours ahead of me on the road, there's benefit to me being in contact with him. And he can tell me if there's snow ahead or if there's a policeman ahead or where the place to eat is. You're just stupid if you don't take advantage of people that have been down the road ahead of you because you disagree with them on something. So if you're one of those that for whatever reason don't like Billy Graham or Oral Roberts, you know, you just got a problem. It's not my problem. Man, I benefited from that. I learned something. That's powerful. We've got this tremendous gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Some of you have had it for 10, 20, 30 years and have never drawn on it. I have compassion for you, but I don't have sympathy on you if you're sitting there depressed and discouraged and baptized in the Holy Ghost. You need to flip the switch and start encouraging yourself and build yourself up. And if you aren't going to do it, well then I'm not going to feel sorry for you. I'll have compassion on you, but I'd say use what you got. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. There's a lot of you right here that have had the Holy Spirit as long as I've had the Holy Spirit. And yet he hasn't accomplished in your life what he's accomplished in mine. Not because I'm a hot rod, but because I've drawn on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because I pray in tongues, because I let the Holy Spirit, I study the word and the Holy Spirit bears witness with it. Brothers and sisters, you've got everything it takes. God gave us the Holy Spirit. This is the same Holy Spirit that moved on the face of the waters and caused light to be and created these mountains, this entire world. Everything physical and natural, this, everything that we know in the world was created by the power of God through the Holy Spirit you have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you and yet you're sucking your thumb and talking about how hard it is and oh God, would you please move in my life? I'm telling you the truth because I love you, but I'm saying there is no excuse. There's reasons, but there is not an excuse. If you have the Holy Spirit, you've got the power of God. Jesus said you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And these people who were weak and afraid and ran and hid and denied the Lord before they received the Holy Spirit. Once the Holy Spirit came upon them, they stood boldly and said, man, if we're examined about how this miracle was done to the impotent man, be it known unto you that the name of Jesus through faith in his name is what produced it. The Jesus that you crucified. They were bold and it says these people when they perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus for three and a half years and were weak and powerless and afraid and denied Jesus. But when the Holy Spirit came upon them, man, they were changed. They went out and power operated through them and they started seeing the dead raised and blind eyes open. The Holy Spirit is sent to give you power to energize you, but he's not going to do it against you. You're going to have to renew your mind. You're going to have to assure your heart. You're going to have to build yourself up. You're going to have to start praying in tongues. You're going to have to study the word and give him something to bear witness with besides as the stomach turns on the television. And I tell you, once you get the Holy Spirit, you've got everything that it takes for you to be an overcomer. I'm not really down on you. It may sound like I am, but I'm just trying to be honest and provoke you and let you realize that God has given us more than we need to be able to succeed. Use it. It's like a person sitting in front of this huge meal, steak and potatoes and everything you want, desserts. You got this huge seven, 10 course meal sitting in front of you and you're talking about how hungry you are. And praying and oh God, I'm so hungry. And you're just crying out and you got all of this right here. I'm not going to feel pity for you. Eat. 
God's not going to open your mouth and put it in there. He's not going to give you an IV that forces it in. He's provided it all, but you have to take it in. God has given us everything that it takes to be victorious. He says everything that pertains unto life and godliness comes through the knowledge of him. Second Peter chapter one, verses three and four. It says in John chapter one, to those who believe, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. If you believed on Jesus, you have power to overcome cancer, any disease, overcome poverty, overcome depression. So many people come to me and it's just like, I I can do nothing. The doctor says that it's incurable. Would you please pray? And I just want to slap them. but I'm powerless. No, you aren't. That's the problem right there. You're approaching it as if there's nothing I can do. I'm so weak. I'm so nothing. I'm saying this in love. Don't get mad at me, but you're so ignorant is what the problem is. God has given you everything. You've got the power of the Holy Spirit and you just aren't using it. Man, we got to understand that God has given us everything. The Holy Spirit is so powerful, but we've got to renew our mind and start letting the Holy Spirit do his job to build you up and encourage you. He's a comforter, not a condemner, not the accuser. God loves you. Some of you are just afraid, man, if I started encouraging myself the way you're talking about, I just become arrogant. That's not so. The Holy Spirit will always convict you of not trusting, believing on Jesus. He'll keep it in the context of relationship with God. It'll keep you from getting lifted up in pride. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, God's given us everything we need. We just aren't using it. And the Holy Spirit is so important in our life. If you aren't just absolutely thrilled with your life, it's because you have not let the Holy Spirit have his control and dominance in your life. And it starts with receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit and receiving the gift of speaking in tongues. And again, that's not all it is. There's a word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, the gift of faith, healing, all kinds of ministry gifts, administration and the gift of giving and the gift of hospitality and other things mentioned in the word. But boy, speaking in tongues seems to be like the, the switch that you flip that just makes everything else work. If you have the Holy Spirit, start using what God gave you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, tonight would be a great time to receive the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe that the Lord led me to minister on this. I believe that the Holy Spirit is trying to do this positive ministry in your life and release his power. And God's trying to bring you to a new level where you start living in victory. And I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to come and invade your life and just fill you up. So is there anybody here who's not received this gift?